Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group, uh, and with me today is my co-host, Rob Hunt. Hey, Rob, how you doing? Doing great, Larry. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, thank you. Uh, to our regular listeners, uh, our other co-host, Jim Marty of the Bridge West Group out of Denver, is not with us today. Jim is in transit. Uh, as he tends to be from time to time. So he sends his regards to all and will be joining up with us again next week. Um, For those who are tuning in, uh, and we also want to make sure we welcome our friends who are listening to us on Clubhouse. uh, Welcome. This is a great show that we have for you today. It's really uh, uh, very, very exciting. We have um, not only some interesting things to talk about, both in the marijuana world and in the Grateful Dead world, but we happen to have an exceptional guest with us today, a gentleman named Michael Klein. Uh, Michael is the co-founder and CEO of Bio365, and he also happens to share a few business interests with a gentleman named Bob Weir. Uh, we thought that would make him a very, very interesting guest on our show, and uh, so uh, stay tuned because uh, he'll be joining us in a couple of minutes and uh, has stories that are well worth listening to. Rob, what's going on with you, and uh, what's the big news you're hearing in the uh, marijuana world right now? I think the big one that just happened was uh, Amazon changing its policy in cannabis and officially coming out and endorsing legalization of cannabis. Uh, And on top of that, coming out publicly and saying they will no longer be drug testing their employees uh, for cannabis in their in their systems. So uh, one of the biggest employers in in the world saying that we are now going to allow workers to uh, not be disqualified through their use of cannabis, which is, you know, should be seen as huge news uh, in the corporate world and hopefully will be a harbinger of other companies to follow. Well, I would agree, you know, and sometimes Amazon gets slammed for uh, being a model uh, that goes off in the wrong direction. So at least on this occasion, uh, we should take a moment to note the good that they're doing by doing this. And and to the extent they can get other employers to uh, look in the same direction and understand that we don't have to go around ostracizing entire classes of people uh, just because they choose to relax with cannabis as opposed to uh, the other myriad of uh, drugs and alcohol and things that are out there that uh, people just always don't ever seem to give a damn about just the marijuana. So I think that's a great move by Jeff Bezos. Uh, very happy to see it. Um, you know, it's interesting as my friend, as my son's friends come of age uh, and they venture out into the world, I've gotten calls from many of them about this very issue. Uh, what do I do? I'm applying for a job with a big company. They have, they say they have a, a no smoking policy and, you know, I smoke and, and how am I going to handle this? And, you know, the, the answer typically is, well, you, you know, you do your best to, to get there and to meet the people and find out who does and who doesn't and, you know, what the skinny is. And it feels still a little bit like being in high school and having to find the stoner crowd in order to fit in. So it's wonderful to see that a company that others look up to as an example in the big business world is going to go in this direction. You think about from the perspective that Amazon by market cap is a single largest company in the world right now. And you think about what they did several years ago with with respect to uh, health insurance, where they banded together with four or five other large groups and said, we're going to, you know, upend the way health insurance is thought about at a corporate level. The influence that they wield on anything they choose to get involved with it, it can't be overstated. You know, they're a significant, significant player in so many different industries. And if they want to enter a vertical, they'll enter it and they'll, they'll dominate it if, if they choose to. So for them to come out and say, hey, we're going to take a different stance on this and we're going to do it across the board nationwide, it is a, um, it is a major move by not a huge corporation, by the largest corporation to, to do this. So, you know, whether or not you agree, as you said, with Bezos' policies with respect to um, employment practices and everything else, it should at least be seen as a huge step in the right direction of, you know, normalizing cannabis for the average worker in America. 
Well, and you just said the magic word, Rob, and that's normalizing. And I think that, uh, you know, you and I have had this conversation and many of us in the industry have had the conversation. And that is even uh, though we're currently now living in an age that was difficult to imagine even just a few years ago, uh, where you can legally go and purchase marijuana uh, and the government's all on board with it, it still really hasn't been normalized. And we still have many, many people uh, who on the one hand say, yeah, that's great, you can go buy it. But on the other hand, say, but you better never not, you, know, you better never smoke it. Uh, don't smoke it if you're coming over to my house. Don't smoke it if you're coming to work on my job. Um, and, you know, it, it, this is the, uh, you know, pervasiveness of a 150-year, you know, war that the government has been waging against uh, drugs and cannabis in particular. And you know, we need to take baby steps to move back in the right direction. And, and I would say that, you know, Amazon putting a policy like this in place is even more than a baby step. Uh, this is a giant step. And if other, other uh, large-scale employers follow suit, uh, you know, before we know it, we might actually be calling it a trend. Yeah, very true. And I can tell you there's um, other industries that certainly have never had any sort of drug testing uh, policy in place. And I think that, you know, I've always gravitated towards working in a lot of those industries. And one of them principally is the, um, is the music industry. And, uh, you know, that also goes with production and, and touring musicians and bands and venues. So it's a great segue to introduce our guest this week. Um, Michael Klein is joining us, who is been the owner of uh, one of the world's most famous venues in the jam band community for for many years, which is Sweetwater in Mill Valley, California. Michael, welcome, and uh, thanks for joining us today on the Dead of Canvas show. Thanks. Great pleasure to be here, Robert. Michael, we had a great conversation uh, right before we went on the air, and you were telling us uh, a lot of your background and how you got into uh, Bio365 and what you're actually doing and, and what it means for the commercial cannabis industry. Can you uh, uh, kind of give us a Reader's Digest condensed version of that for a minute and let our listeners kind of know how you got to where you are today and, and what you're doing? Sure, sure. Uh, we're really excited because um, Bio365 has, has introduced a line of living soils to the, to the cannabis world, not just the hydroponic stores, but the corporate cannabis world, the scaled cannabis world. Um, and we're improving the quality of cannabis grown uh, across the country. So it's a really exciting time. So I know in, um, in the cultivation world, you know, it's the world that I came out of a little bit, Michael, um, there's a, a huge kind of difference between what media people choose to use. You know, there's those that embrace the rock wool or, you know, hydroton pellets or other inert medias. Uh, others choose to go with, um, you know, something that's um, peat-based, you know, like a, like a, a ProMix. Uh, then others, you know, are using cocoa coir, which again is an inert media and technically not soil, so it doesn't have the same issues with soil-borne pests. But at the same time, you know, truly the best growers I know in the industry are still using organic, living, beneficial, biological, and inoculated soils. You know, how did you decide to, to focus on soil rather than any other grow media? And, you know, can you explain to our listeners what the benefits you see of using a, a soil like that is? Sure. Um, we believe in, in honoring the plant DNA. I, I like to say that this is a plant that spent several hundred thousand years trying to control the most powerful species on the planet for the purpose of spreading its seed. I would give it an A. <laughs> you can give it whatever you want. But honoring the, the plant's DNA means plants like all humans, all we do is build molecules and living soils allow the plant to be in control of all the building blocks it needs to build those molecules. So you don't get the giant greenhouse tomato that tastes like cardboard. Uh, you get the, the flavorful um, fruit or in the case of cannabis, you get unbelievable terpene profiles and cannabinoid profiles. 
let me ask you this, Michael. Explain what the work that Bio365, what does it really do for the cannabis industry and, and for the average, you know, cannabis consumer, right? The guy who's, you know, once a week goes down to his local dispensary, walks in, uh, buys a few pre-rolls, maybe a quarter ounce of something. What role does Bio365 play in all of that? And how do you guys, you know, make it a better market for everyone? Well, we believe soil is, is the, the most important component of, of a successful cultivation in terms of getting plant expression. What the customer is seeking is the expression of the plant. Um, I'm not a believer in, in taking molecules and separating them and recombining them and thinking that you're as smart as the plant. So uh, honoring the plant, what our soils do is they typically are raising cannabinoid levels from the low 20s to the high 20s, or they're raising terpene levels from, from 0.9 to 1.4. Uh, it's a, often a, a better than 50% increase, and they're getting better yield. But we're also very involved with the cultivator in solving their, their, their IPM programs, their cultivation challenges. Um, we, we really try and get close to the customer and, and we like to say we add value and we extract value because we're learning with every customer, um, every different challenge, every different solution, um, and, and we're real partners in, in, in that cultivation. I got to think some of the bigger names in the industry then are, uh, are starting to use your product and obviously with your relationship with the Grateful Dead, I've got to think you've gotten Josh Gunderson and the Holistic team on your product. Is, is that the case? <laughs> Yeah, it is. Although it was it was unknown at the time that they trialed us, and and uh, we we really were actually doing a case study with them. Uh, the results were really spectacular, and uh, and so it was just a it was an interesting coincidence um, that I find all the time in the industry. So, so does that mean that all of uh, Garcia's handpicked uh, cannabis is being grown with Bio three sixty five soil? Yes, and uh, and they they're truly an outstanding organization. Uh, they're. As I said, because of the illegal status of cannabis, the, the, the science, the science of agronomy, the, the science of, of, of soil hasn't, hasn't had a chance to really be pushed um, and, and, and to the benefit of, of the, the plant and, and the consumers. And that's, that's all starting to happen now. It's really exciting. Are you, is your product being sold only in California or do you sell it across the country? No, we, we sell across the country, um, and we're, we just, this quarter, launched uh, retail in Grow Generations and a number of uh, New England uh, hydroponic stores. Is, is your product available for the home grower? In Illinois, if you're a patient, uh, a medical patient with a card, you can grow up to five plants, you know, in your basement. Could somebody like that, or are they too small? No, well... Again, we, we think retail hydroponic stores will be the will be the place to, for for that customer to get served. I I just I'm I'm glad you raised that because I have my, I have a pet project going on now. Um, growing cannabis is really hard. Okay, you, having to understand photo periods and vegging nutrients versus flowering nutrients and EC and pH and it is beyond what I would say any any reasonable home gardener would would be able to do. Unless you're talking about our friend uh, John Lowenfell's autoflowers, um, and and so I we have super nutrient dense soils that our flowering soils nutrient profile is really similar to a 70 day autoflower, and so I'm I'm working out a water only system with our soils. You'll buy you'll buy our soils in a sealed grow bag. A, a little starter tray with to, to, to plant your seeds in, 
and, and a little book, which will be cannabis for not so dummies because you're having fun. So it, it'll be a, a home system that anybody can do. And with autoflower plants, it's, it's, it's just like growing a tomato, which, you know, anybody can do. So now you brought him up, I think it's a good time. We should probably at least plug Jeff Lowenfels for everyone on this, uh, out in the audience that's never heard of Jeff. He is uh, the godfather of Alaskan humus and uh, taught us more about humic acid than I think any other person out there. So if anyone out there is listening and wants to understand soil science better, I highly recommend reading Jeff's book called Teeming with Microbes. He has several others as well, but um, a big plug to Jeff Lowenfels. Sorry for speaking over you. Teeming with nutrients and, and teeming with, uh, with fungi. That's right. Yeah, all three. Yeah, he's got three of them. And as and a guy who, you know, likes to visit the local, uh, you know, dispensary from time to time, all I can say is thank goodness for you guys because, uh, you know, I just get to enjoy the end product and we don't really think a whole lot about what it takes to get there. Um, but, you know, from time to time, it is worth thinking about and to know that there's folks like you out there that are, you know, constantly, you know, fighting the good fight to find new ways to, you know, to improve the uh, the selections and the uh, the strengths, the terpenes, all of this stuff, you know. When we were growing up, nobody knew about any of that stuff, right? It was just marijuana. And if it was green, it was special. That was about as, as close as it got for us. And, you know, now my kids who are, you know, in, in high school and college come in and they want to talk about turp profiles. And I'm like, what the hell are you guys talking? Dad, you don't know anything. So, you know, I, I was too stupid before. I'm too stupid now, but I know what I like. What I, the other thing that I like about this, obviously, is that, you know, for somebody who wants to do a home grow, for somebody who wants to get involved, you know, and they, they have access you know to what it's like you know going and saying i want to work in a kitchen but i don't have access to, you know to, to to restaurant grade cooking equipment if all of a sudden you know you can get access to you know some of the stuff that the big boys use uh you know that can kind of really help to level the playing field for the for the home growers or for for some of the smaller growers out there and uh you know while i i certainly applaud and uh you know admire many of these companies that have uh uh, managed to race out of the starting blocks or even the the, the mid blocks now and become these large um, uh, multi-state operators and um, you know are really out there. I I have an affinity for the for the local grower and for the mom and pop shop and you know when I'm driving through the state of Colorado I like to pull off the highway every now and then and drive down some of the other roads just to see you know you every now and then you find that dispensary that has the you know joint and a hot dog and a firecracker for you know ten dollars and you know you, you just can't beat a deal like that so. I, I, I look for it. So that's all good. But I, I think that, you know, uh, we don't want to bury the lead here, Michael, and as exciting as all of this stuff is, and, and we'll, we'll swing back to this in a minute uh, so that people have uh, an idea how they can get in touch with you and, and, and take advantage of some of your, uh, your products and your services that you guys have. Let's talk music for a few minutes and let's talk live music and something that we haven't had a whole lot of lately. Uh, and we're really hoping to get it soon. And, uh, Although, yes, the big venues are out there and um, I'm sure the people in New York can't get wait to get back to MSG. And, you know, in Chicago, unfortunately for us, that's the Rosemont Horizon, which isn't really quite the same. But we've managed to deal with it all these years. But nothing beats great live music in a small venue. And uh, as Rob alluded to at the very beginning uh, of our show, you have an ownership interest in uh, what's probably one of the uh, now over time become, you know, really one of the classic small rock and roll venues really for any music but in particular uh for those of us that really love the grateful dead and uh, the people who made up the grateful dead and of course i'm speaking about the sweetwater saloon in mill valley california tell us a little bit how did this come to be that one day you find yourself as the owner of this saloon and at the time 
you know, what was going on there? I moved to Mill Valley in 1985 from, from Manhattan, stumbled into this little club and it would only, only sat a hundred people, but on any given night, the great artists of Marin from Carlos Santana to Bonnie Raitt to Bob and Jerry, and even people like Elvis Costello and John Lee Hooker would, would be in there. And, um, it was it was an incredible community asset that never could make any money. The the story behind it, the woman who started it, her husband and 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 she started it, and he ran off on her three weeks after it opened, and left her with a club that she didn't know anything about in the music business. She didn't know anything about, and she was such a sweetheart, and she took such good care of the musicians that they all loved her and would do anything for her. And it was also the playpen. It was where all these great musicians could come bring their people they wanted to play with and, 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 and their friends. And it, it was so special. It never could make money. And, and, and Weir and I kept it you know, alive for you know, probably its, its last five years. And, um, and she, she finally moved on and, and gave us the rights to use the name if we ever could find another venue. And finally in 2012, um, we, we found a, a really great 320-person venue uh, and, and, and reopened as a Sweetwater. And I got, I got 20 members of the community. It was really a community asset. I got 20 members of the community who really cared and understood what it meant. And they, they put up money. And, but we had this incredible team. We had, we had Cutler, who was Jerry's engineer. We had Wiz Leonard, who was the head of, of sound at Skywalker Ranch, but also the engineer on Europe 72. We had great community contractors and, and everybody just did a phenomenal job. So it turned into a room that just sounds great. We have high definition video um, and it has great sight lines and it, it's all you can ask for. The musicians like, love the way it sounds. That's just amazing to me, you know, because I always wondered, you know, every community, there's tons of communities out in that part of the world. And they all have their own little music venues, but somehow this one really just became the magnet for like you say, I mean, and whether it's just because they all live in the neighborhood, which I guess makes it a very good neighborhood to live in. If you're looking for, you know, the local group to show up at the tavern and, and have an impromptu jam, I can promise you we don't get that in Skokie, Illinois very often. Uh, we try, but, you know, never never quite on that yeah, level. I bet, you get, I bet you get some great music. <laughs> we got lots of good music in Chicago, believe me. And I, and I, I will be the last person to complain about that on any given night. If I want to stay up till four in the morning, there's many haunts for me to go make my way to, some of them very, very famous. Um, but I have yet to see uh, anything happen here. Like, uh, let's just touch base on this as long as uh, we're, we're, we're on the date. Uh, turns out that 20 years ago from, well, just a couple of days from us now on June 10th, an amazing thing took place that I guess was the original Sweetwater when a group of musicians who I think uh, Phil always has kind of affectionately referred to as the quintet, uh, Rob Baracco and Jimmy Herring and John Molo and himself and and Warren Haynes, although Warren showed up a little bit late for this gig, uh, all happened to appear that night at Sweetwater and brought along as a good buddy Bob Weir to play with them. And they played that night under the name of the Crusader Rabbit Stealth Band on June 10th, 2001 at Sweetwater. Um, and I think that for a lot of people, it was amazing because it was one of the first times after Phil had recovered from his transplant surgery uh, that he and Bobby were actually on stage together. And... Uh, Although, as you say, there probably couldn't have been more than 100 people in the joint. It, it felt like there were thousands. Were you at that show? 
I was not at that show, unfortunately, but I, I'm going to tell a story now that I, I don't think people know about. Bill was dying, and they couldn't find a kidney for him. A liver for him, excuse me, I apologize. A liver for him. Bobby's wife, Natasha, her father was a Mayo Clinic senior neurologist, and they, they give every senior member of the medical team a go to the head of the list, and Bobby used it for Phil. First of all, it's an amazing story that I've never heard, um, although I've heard the donor rap thousands of times to the point where, you know, my kids know it, we all know it, and, and nobody ever questions why you should be a donor. It's an amazing story, and, and it speaks to two things in my mind. One, just how really close they were and, and, and you know, what it meant to these guys and what they were to each other. And I mean, look, I didn't see my first show until 82, and, you know, I never got within, you know, once in, at Alpine Valley in 2002 when they had the Terrapin family reunion. I walked into the clubhouse of the place we were all staying afterwards, and, you know, two tables away was Bob and the whole crew. And, you know, I, I thought, oh, my God, I'm, you know, you know, just here, you know, basically, you know, in the presence of all of this. But, uh, but you know, for the people who knew them and what we've all read and, and, and how amazingly close they were, and but that's why I love this album because this album, or not album, but this show brought the two of them back on stage. And in fact, if you listen to it somewhere in the midst of all of it, one of the people in the audience yells out about how wonderful it is to see the two of you back on stage again and playing together again. And, you know, I, it, over the years, we've heard stories about different divisions in the band, but I love the stories that talk about how tight they really were. And that, that's just a wonderful Bobby story. Thank you for sharing that. Just going to say that I, for my money, because I, I saw pretty much all of 85 to 95. And, and certainly, my feeling is it further played better Grateful Dead music than the Dead did. It's certainly from 90, 90 or 92, depending on you know, the excitement of having Bruce there. Um, the last time Jerry, I think, smiled was 92, when you know, Bruce was still on stage with him. Um, but, but I thought further played, you know, Bobby and Phil and further played great Grateful Dead music. In fact, I saw Further uh, at the Sweetwater a few years ago on a four-night run that was absolutely amazing and just one of the one of the greatest four nights of music of my life. I've got the poster sitting right here in my office. It, it was fantastic. Oh, that's great. Yep. Yeah, you just took away my my my, my favorite experience. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that was amazing. Um, but but touching on that Crusader Rabbit Stealth Band, uh, I believe I'm going to ask our producer Dan Humiston if he uh, doesn't have a little clip of that that we can listen to for a minute. Well, first of all, we're all smiling and bopping in our seats, so that's a good sign. But Rob, take take us through that clip for a minute, would you please? Yeah, I mean, I think what's uh, what's really great about that is the three people you really notice the most in that clip uh, are Jimmy Herring, Rob Baracco, and um, and uh, John Molo. You know, which is a uh, you know Phil and Bobby are kind of in the background on that, but the lead guitar there is is 100% Jimmy Herring, and then uh, the Baracco on the keyboards is uh, is super hot. So I think that's the the jam coming out of um, music never stopped when it goes into the quiet period after the last verse, and then they're building the jam back up, and that's right back when they come into the uh, the music never stopped theme again. So really, really fun way to feature you know how other people play Grateful Dead music with members of the Grateful Dead. 
And, and when I listen to it, you know, and I'm sure a lot of this has to do with the fact that they're in a very small, intimate room, you can feel the energy of the crowd. I mean, the crowd is reacting to these guys. You know, it's like, oh, my God, here they are. They're back together. They're on stage and they sound wonderful. Um, and, and you can just you, you can feel the energy in that room when you're listening to it. And, and uh, I mean, that that's a really, really magical thing. Uh, Michael, I know you, you said, unfortunately, you weren't there that night. But but tell us about some other nights, you know, at the Sweetwater that really stand out for you. Well, interestingly, I, I, since we're on the, the Deadhead Cannabis Hour, Snoop Dogg played Sweetwater really? um, two years ago as part of the film festival. Um, and, and, and it was actually, he's, he's an entertainer. It was really enjoyable. I think our opening night, it meant a lot to me because one of my favorite bands from my, my, my youth, um, The Outlaws, uh, played. Um, and, uh, and, and Henry Paul played with his band, uh, and and so it was that was that was really special. Bonnie's always really great when 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 she she drops in, um, and and Elvis Costello at the at the New Sweetwater was also really a, a, an incredible night. Well, there's a picture that's been circulating for many years of Jerry and Elvis, like you know, up on stage or almost with, and I it, I always just assumed that that was taken at the Sweetwater. It looked like they were standing up on that stage in front of the same kind of paneling or whatever these guys are here. So that's. But right, it's you know, it's like some of the you know the the uh, the blues clubs in Chicago. You can walk into them on any given night. You just don't know who's going to pop in unexpectedly and you know decide to to share their tunes with the crowd. It's uh, it's an amazing experience. And I and I think I think all musicians you know want to have that place that they're 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 comfortable and safe. You know, they know how they're going to sound. Um, so they can, so they can, you know, be with people they're not going to be with, play with otherwise, and 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 explore a little bit. It, it, you know, Bob Bob calls it his playpen. Here's the problem that I have with Bob Weir. He looks old now, but in my mind, he's always, you know, the the young. <laughs> prankster you know the, the silly one while the rest of them were trying to be just a little bit more on the serious side you know and, and now he's kind of taken on the role of elder statesman himself and and yeah. while he certainly does a good job you know there's a part of me that really misses the the playful impish bobby weir where you just never knew what he was going to do next uh it's still there <laughs> it's still there he's never going to lose that um and and the, the humor has always been, you know, a constant, you know, theme with the band. They they they, you know, there's this one quote you you see somewhere where Garcia says, "Yeah, the music. We've been for the music. You know, we never could have stayed together. It was it was the humor." <laughs> and and they you know, they were all really bright and really funny. Well, they, exactly. I mean, very very brilliant guys. And the humor. One of the we've been listening a lot to Europe '72, you know, and throughout that tour. Another one of the things I always loved about Bobby was the Yellow Dog story. And how he would sit there and he would tell the story about the alligator that was, you know, looked like a die. But he would just tell it with the same earnestness every time as though the crowd had never heard it before. And, you know, you could just tell every now and then stuff would come out of his mouth and you'd be like, this is a well-educated dude. He knows what he's talking about. He's just having fun up there. Yeah. And I, I, I owe a huge debt to him. I mean, he, he taught me, a, I sort of um, 
I, I escaped in, in, to Mill Valley in 1985, and I'd come out of Manhattan and, you know, Harvard Business School and the corporate world, and, and, and he taught me about our environmental challenges we were facing and, and got me involved in, 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 a, in a lot of ways. And again, you know, a lot of, a lot of nights, when you come off the stage at, at midnight, you're not, you're not going to sleep until four or five. It's just no way you can right. dissipate the energy, so... Um, I got a, got a lot of his wisdom. Well, you know, I, I have to tell you that um, I was a, I was a journalism major in college and, and did a lot of sports writing. And one of the things that I loved about it was the access it gave me. But one of the things I didn't like about it was the access that it gave me. Right. And sometimes you see things that as a fan, you know, maybe you just as soon not see. And look, I just want to imagine these guys the way they are and who they are. But my, my exception to the rule was I, I, I think I would have given anything to have been able to just spend one evening post-show with the boys, you know, and just kind of see how they were processing after a, after a big heavy night of playing and, you know, what they would wind up talking about when they were all just hanging around afterwards. And, and uh, it, that must be a pretty special time. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately by, you know, by the mid eighties, when I, when I got involved, they, they had pretty much separated into their own, their own groups. Um, you know their own their own entourage. They were big enough. They you know had um, a lot a lot less interaction than you would think. Um, but that was okay. I mean, it, it probably kept them together, you know, longer. And, and I, I know you know Bobby Bobby loved to cook, and we would come to Chicago. Okay, and we had a friend who owned restaurants, and he had one right across the street from the from the Ritz where we stayed. And we would take forty people down there at one in the morning, two in the morning when the bar would close in the Ritz. And we'd cook hot sauce all night. And people would be walking around with their, their heads spinning around and smoke coming out of their ears. And, and you know, and all, the only rule was we had to be out when the cleaning crew came in at 7.45 or something. <laughs> but, it, I, you know, my, my, I, my great function in, in life was, you know, I, I, by that time I was lucky enough to have retired and um, had the time to, to travel with them. And so the parties were all in my suite so that Bob could go to sleep whenever he wanted to. That, that's, I felt, was the least I could do. Well, we always knew about the Ritz. That was a, a popular place for them to stay. And in fact, in 87, they came to town and we had gotten our tickets. They were playing at the UIC Pavilion. And at the last minute, they added a third show that they were going to air on the radio. And it, you know, it was an impossible ticket to get. There was no mail order either. You know, you, you made your way through Ticketmaster or you didn't. And everybody was trying to get their hands on tickets. So my wife, who wasn't yet my wife at the time, and one of her nursing school buddies made their way down to the Ritz with a, a bouquet of flowers and figured they were going to see who they could call. And, and so the, somehow they wound up calling Phil's room and, and it just makes me feel old. Cause at the time Phil's response asked for Phil Lush, they got his room, but Phil said, we have a young baby. So, you know, we're not, and of course that, that had to be either Graham or, or the other one who now are, you know, up there playing with him and, and doing everything anyway. They didn't think to call Bobby, but they tried Jerry and Jerry was very friendly and asked him if they wanted to come upstairs and they decided, no, maybe they better not. So they left the flowers. He did wind up leaving them two tickets at will call. So it was a successful mission. Nice. That's a great story. So Michael, when you say that you saw pretty much everything from 85 to 95, uh, as kind of like the statistician on this, on this panel, um, how many total shows did you end up seeing? Do you, do you know your stats? Like, or how many uh, Grateful Dead shows? How many Garcia Band shows? My ballpark was a, about 850 Grateful Dead. Um, I saw about ha half the shows, 85 to 95, and 
90 percent of them 90 to 95. what about jgb oh at least 50. yeah mostly warfields uh yeah warfields uh i, I used to love it. I, I was chairman of rainforest action network and we used to throw benefits with, oh, with josh kerman yeah awesome Josh Kernan ran the Rainforest Action Network uh, table at the uh, at the Grateful Dead shows, so he lives in Marin as well. Ah, okay. I thought Bill Carter. Bill Carter did for a while too. We got me involved in that. I, I ended up, you know, on, on the, the board for twenty five years, and and uh, we we used to throw benefits. The, the first other one show was a was a, a rehearsal show for the tour that was a Warfield benefit. You know, we throw a dinner down on the floor and. Yeah, that was, uh, we loved that venue. You got the uh, the 10th night of MSG as a benefit for you guys in 88 also, huh? I mean, that was a, a straight Rainforest benefit, um, Rainforest Action Network benefit. Well, it was, yeah, Green, Greenpeace, Greenpeace, Rainforest Action Network split it. Uh, Hall and Oates were on the, the bill, Hornsby. Yep, and it was a radio broadcast. It was one of the few times. You know, I actually got to know John Oates later in, in Colorado, and he's really a wonderful, wonderful guy. I mean, I, I love him. I love the fact that they're still around and, and for, to some people that, you know, their music still remains relevant. I think that's a wonderful thing. I always loved Hollow Notes. I, I saw their uh, rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremony. They kind of got booed that night pretty bad. Well, that look, that, that's, that's a tough position to be in. You know, I saw the Rolling Stones open their 1981 tour in Philadelphia and they had journey open for them at the time. Journey was like the number one band in America and they got booed off the stage, you know, and it, that, that's tough to do. That's tough to do. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, Hollow Notes are the funkiest duo to ever come out of Philly. Those guys, those guys deserve a lot better than uh, than they're getting sometimes. I think both those guys are cool as can be. So anyone, anyone that's um, you know booing on Hollow Notes. Uh, well, it was just it was a dead show because I, I always loved the there was a pay per view in '80 with Franken and Davis doing the the commentator, and, and there's this one line where they said. You know, how many people have watched the, the Grateful Dead live in concert? And in fact, if you line them up from end to end, they'd reach to the moon and halfway back and they wouldn't complain. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, that, that's a great, I remember that video. That, that's a wonderful video. They were a lot of fun. They, uh, in fact, I think, isn't that the video, Rob, where they uh, interview Annabelle and she says to her dad, buy me a car or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Uh, I know that you know Al Franken and, uh, and Davis were pretty tight with the Grateful Dead, and I think those guys would all hang out um, at the Saturday Night Live um, bar that Belushi and Aykroyd owned in New York for a long time. And I think that's where kind of friendship was built. And Michael, I'll tell you, you a great, that. great story. Two thousand four or so, I think it was a dead, uh, a dead, the Dead show. Um, the end of the tour was out at uh, on, on Long Island, Jones Beach, and. Um, in the meantime, there was a hurricane headed for Florida, and my father was down there, my 88-year-old father, whatever, and I'm going, Dad, get on a plane, go to Cleveland, go to New York, just get away. He said, no, I'm going to stay here, I got my generator. I'm going, Dad, come on, it's headed right for Florida. You know? He said, no, 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 I called him every day. Finally, I had to get on a plane and go back to New York, and I went to the show, that show with Al, Al and, and, and Franny, and the hurricane turned north and hit us at Jones Beach, and we were up to our thighs in water in Jones Beach. So after all that, you guys, okay, so then your dad said, I hope you were ready. <laughs> after all that, the hurricane hit me. <laughs> oh, my God. So, nice, Dad. So I've got to ask, uh, 800 Grateful Dead shows, name like your three. If you were to pick three, you go, wow, those were the nights that absolutely just blew my mind. You know, I, I know, obviously, like if you were to ask like, sort of the Bill Walton answer, what's your favorite Dead song, and the, the next one. Um, but as far as, you know, favorite memories of just magical nights. Well, first of all, I, I got to say that I feel 
very much like the band does, which is it's, it's brilliant for seconds at a time. And, and, and so I, I don't think in terms of brilliant nights, there, there aren't many that I you know, would consider end end brilliant nights. But among the ones that I do and, and that stick in my memory, my very first show in March of 1969 at the Allen Theater in Cleveland, the new riders opening, the band doing the acoustic thing, and the, the, the electric show at the end, it blew my mind and it made me a deadhead for the rest of my life. So that, that absolutely, you know, is going to be there. 1972, I had a buddy who somehow scored a front row seat. I sat at Weir's feet right before they went over to Europe in the, in, in the fall of 72. And, and that show was wow. just incredible. And, and then I, I would say that there, there was a Frost show in... in 85, the last year that they had Frost shows. Um, the Brent was, was, was really playing well, and, and I, I think that, that, that show was probably the third one that would come to mind. But I, I think more in terms of, of specific songs, you know, I think about, I think about the, the, you know, when I said, you know, last time Jerry sm smiled was with Hornsby. I, I think about the Halloween run in, in 92 when, uh, when they did a Stella Blue, and and Hornsby followed Jerry, um, and and it was just silent. The place was silent. It was just spectacular. Um, they, they they just alternated, and, and but but Hornsby was following them, or they were they were anyway. It was it was spectacular. I think about those sorts of moments that that uh, you know jog my memories. Absolutely. It and, you know, with the Grateful Dead, what I find is sometimes it's more than just the musical memory, right? It's what else was happening within the right. moment of the musical memory. In right. 1988, the last the last year they played Alpine Valley, and I, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to pull out which night it was. And Jerry played one of the most amazing, beautiful morning dues I ever heard. And at the jam at the end, a deadhead got up on the stage just off to his side and just stood there, just expressing the emotion that everyone else in the place was like in awe, but he just had to get a few steps closer. And security just kind of hung back. Nobody hassled the guy. He never made a step towards Jerry, and Jerry just played it through. But when I think of how beautiful that morning dew was, and I see this guy standing up there just slack-jawed, you know, just to be in the presence of this, and to be able to do it 800 times, you know, and, and from the, the, the perspective that you got to see it from, that's, that's just amazing. Yeah. It, I, I, um, I was a real fan and, and still am. And, and it's, uh, you, you know, it was, a it was like fantasy camp. I, I had a, the time of my life, what I can remember. <laughs> right. <laughs> what you can remember. That's so funny. That's great. Now, do you still, uh, do you still go around and see the dead and company shows? I do. I absolutely do. And I didn't want to. In fact, I went, I went to the first Dead & Company show at Madison Square Garden. And I was, I was taking acid with my, my wife and my daughter and her boyfriend. Family, I love that. And I looked, down on, I, I, looked, I looked down on the floor and there's this blonde in a white long dress, long blonde hair with roses in her hair. And she's dancing. And, and, and there's even a spotlight on her. And I go back at intermission, and she's an employee. And, and I just had this terrible Irving vibe. And I said, you know, I, I, I don't think I like this. And, 
And I, I counted John through his first rehearsals. He had never played a song that wasn't in four. <laughs> um, and and he, he's so naughty. And, and I, you know, I just didn't like it. We left it. We left before the end of the show, that first one. I didn't go for years until the summer of 2019. And I was so impressed with John and how far he had come, and not just as a guitar player, um, as, a, as a, a, a guy, as a human being. And I thought that the band was playing great music. It was, it was really a pleasure. I, I took a lot of customers to a lot of the, that, that summer's shows. Sure. No, I agree. I, you know, I think Rob and I were both smiling a little bit when you, you said at first, you know, I didn't want to like them, you know, and, and, and every time the new iteration would come out and it's like, okay, who are they, who are they going to drag up front to play Jerry now? And, you know, there, there's always this initial pushback for me but every time i i love the other ones i love when they were running around calling themselves the dead i loved further i i you know could I, and i was so sad when they didn't keep john catalastic with them because he was just so wonderful and why are they bringing yeah, out trey and then trey was wonderful you know and then trey was wonderful right you know and, and and my my favorite moment of all of that is the beautiful self-awareness of bobby on the third night when he walks out wearing the let trey sing t-shirt I thought that was spot on. Mm -hmm. I just love that. Yeah, that, yeah. that T-shirt was made by Ben Baruch from the Fox Theater. He's the, uh, the the booking agent from the Fox in Boulder, Colorado. Right. And when Bobby actually walked out with that shirt, everyone that's like tight with the whole like Boulder crew just went nuts because uh, that that was Ben's shirt. Right. Like ah, Baruch shirts on stage. But yeah. you know, but but you know, everybody he heard what the crowd was saying and he went with it. You know, I just, I love that. That's that was great. Well, all I can say, Michael, is thank you through the years of just being uh, someone that's put amazing music in front of us and doing it in a way that's not AEG and Live Nation and all the other big promoters and staying true to the roots of, of live music and giving place for uh, musicians to plug in whenever they feel like coming to play. Um, very few venues like that in the world, and I'm truly, truly uh, amazed that you were able to do it for so long in such a great spot with so many great players. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It was really fun. Uh, I, I love this show, but, you know, music and cannabis, you know, it's a double barrel. <laughs> That's, well, look, they don't have to pay us a whole lot to do this, Michael, I can tell you. Um, you know, the opportunity to talk about that <laughs> and then do, you know, every now and then to get to come across, you know, somebody such as yourself who... Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I, I always tease Rob as between the two of us. I started seeing the dead years before he did. So I've got that on him. But, you know, he, he managed to make his way in, you know, with a lot of the right people, too. So he's got a lot of great experiences. And, uh, you know, but but still, to, you know, to hear all of that, it's, it's just so wonderful, to, you know, to get to talk to people who really have been right there and have experienced the moment, you know, and have, you know, have been with Bobby backstage after one of those shows. And, you uh, Far from, uh, there, at first there was always a part of me that was a little bit envious of that, but at the end of the day, it's just nice to hear, you know, you, you, you like to know what these guys are and that they're good people and they're doing good things and, you know, that they really have, you know, humanity as a whole in mind and they're not just getting up there and singing about it. Yeah, no, I, I, Bobby Weir, I don't think I, he's ever had a bad thought in his head. I'm, I'm not sure, I, I'm aware of one. Well, wait, that's it's, not it's true. Uh, he got busted for smiling on a cloudy day once. So, you know, the, he obviously had something <laughs> going on there that wasn't quite right. I don't know. I want to ask him about that if I ever talk to him, but uh, that's another beautifully self-aware verse. You know, I, I just, that's, I, every time I hear that, I laugh because again, that's, Right, I can just. I was never there, but I've heard the story. I can just imagine him sitting there with that shit-eating grin on his face, and the cops soaking wet, looking at him and saying, "Was it you? Was it you?" <laughs> it's too funny, Michael. One last question for you: How do people get in touch with you for uh, 
Bio 365 and for uh, for all the, all those kind of products that you, you have out there? Sure. So I think the easiest way is probably in, in the cannabis world uh, to go to Instagram, bio365soil. You can DM me there um, and, and I'll get it. And uh, Or uh, take a look at our, some of our wonderful customers and, and what they're doing um, on, on the Instagram site. Excellent. Well, we will encourage uh, all of our customers, especially those who have a particular interest in uh, in uh, cultivation or know people that have an interest in cultivation, to uh, you know, to go check it out and uh, and see what they think. And uh, can you give us any hints? Uh, do you have any uh, upcoming shows booked at Sweetwater that our listeners are going to want to know about, even if we can't all get out there and see it? Um, we're going to have Bob and the Wolf Brothers, and uh, I believe it's July 27th um, in, uh, in Mill Valley. It, it, we may have it indoors, we may have it outdoors. We're, we're still working on that in terms of size and how many people we can do. Can we expect um, Phil to give Bobby a payback for Bobby having shown up recently at these shows at Terrapin and maybe Phil will show up for these? I would... Um, Not to put you on the spot. I couldn't say. I couldn't say if I knew, but you know, right. it would be the gentlemanly thing to do. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. See that? Well, that's the beauty of being out there. If they feel like doing it, all they have to do is hop in their car and drive over, and and they're on their yeah. way. Well, Michael Klein, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Uh, your stories have been great. Uh, we love the work you're doing and the causes that you're fighting for. Um, and like I say, it's just it's always uh, uh, refreshing and positive to hear good stories about the boys and that uh, you know that they can really live up to this. Uh, to the image that many of us have, you know, have always kind of, you know, pictured them in just because of all the positive and good they did for all of our lives. So uh, thank you for that. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on. It was a, a, a real kick. Absolutely. Uh, Rob, any parting words? Yeah. In the spirit of today's show, um, feed your soil, not your plants. Uh, support your local <laughs> music venue. Support the Rainforest Action Network or any other groups that are fighting for environmentalism. And if you uh, have not told your family yet that you want to be an organ donor, I suggest you go out and do so. And for everyone out there, please do be an organ donor. Uh, thank you, Michael. And thank you, Larry. We'll see you guys next week. Absolutely. And, you know, now, thank boy, you, cool. now we're going to have to decide if we need to start doing our own donor wrap each week because uh, it is so important. But I'd, I'd hate to steal uh, Phil's thunder. And on the way out the door, I, I, I do want to uh, – we didn't have time to get to this today, but I do want to give proper credit – uh, to Rob, who uh, noticed uh, this to me, and that all of our listeners, if you go to the June 7th, 1991 show uh, from Deer Creek, you will hear an absolutely amazing version of Standing on the Moon. Uh, Rob likes to think of it as the breakout version for Jerry, and right before we went on, he had clued me in on that, and I went and listened to it and was actually a couple of minutes late signing on because it was uh, so amazing. So if people are looking for something to listen tonight, June 7th, 91, Deer Creek, Standing on the Moon, and uh, if you have cannabis handy, it'll make it all the more better for you. So uh, thank you again to all of our listeners. Thanks to my co-host, Rob, my co-host, Jim. We'll see you next week. And special thanks to our guest, Michael Klein, uh, for taking the time to come and talk with us today. Uh, we have a great show lined up for you next week. Our guest is Matt Abel. Matt is the uh, president of Michigan Normal. Uh, he is also Cannabis Council, and I can say that about Matt because he has Cannabis Council trademarked, as I found out when I tried to call myself Cannabis Council. Uh, but Matt's a great guy, and we're looking forward to bringing him on. We'll have lots of uh, more good stories and stuff to talk about the Grateful Dead. 
And uh, so to all of our listeners, have a good week, stay safe and healthy, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on PodConX. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at thetalkinghedgepodcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out.